Golf is 18 little games, 18 fresh starts, 18 opportunities to shake off the failures of the past and embrace the good fortune of the present. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you like and subscribe to the 18 Opportunities podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify, and then share with your friends. On this episode, or this whole of 18 Opportunities, I want to explore another reason why I, we love golf and by the end of this episode, so should you, which is that golf is a ball game. And that may seem rather obvious. And of course, many games are ball games. But I believe when you look into the history of golf and you understand golf and its complexity as it relates to the human experience and the advancement of technology, let's listen to a little bit of Malcolm Gladwell when he thinks in, about golf and thinks about the ball. Because golf involves launching a potentially lethal projectile at great speeds across enormous distances. It depends on whose club it's going off. Exactly. And, and as Drew is posting today, apparently you do do that on number 12 at Great Blue. On occasion, uh, I've been known to do that. Uh, maybe Billy, not so much. But, but yeah. at occasion, Billy gets up there towards mock speeds. But uh, yep. Well, and, not, and, and as we explored, like in golf as a target game, you know, really it is in many ways. Is a, a replacement for a lethal projection. As we've talked about, golf it w evolved from the sport of archery, as, as well as other sports, but it, but archery is, is part of its DNA. And of course, you know, an arrow quite literally is a lethal projection. What I wanted to do today with Drew is to just explore, you know, what do you know about the golf ball or even the history of the golf ball? Do you want me to talk about what I know? Well... It's not much. I know a little. Yeah. Tell me, what do you think you know? I could say the phases I think that it's been through, but not much context behind why. So I, I think that the phases have been something like there was a wood ball. And then, there was a wood ball. Yeah, let's start with that. Uh, the, I think it started with a wood ball. Okay, yeah, let's go into that. So um, there's, there's some fair consensus that golf began uh, its play with a wooden ball. Uh, the wooden ball was also used in some of the sports that, you know, are part of its, um, you know, DNA heritage. And that would be golf and Judah Mall. These are games that were, golf was played on the, the ice in the Netherlands. Judah Mall was played in the And these sports were French. played with wooden balls. And they were played more, and exactly, and they were played with like, the clubs were like mallets and yeah. or it's not like, like they, had, they didn't have like manufacturing facilities for polyurethane in, in these days. Yeah. And if you were to think about it, carving, you know, a wood ball would have been pretty challenging. Hell yeah. You know what I found as I. I mean, uh, they didn't have a lathe. Guess what they would have used for sandpaper. So I was watching a documentary <laughs> about Scotland and I learned this and I was like kind of blown away. <laughs> my dog's. My dog's Actually, it was about Viking. They were. It was about Viking ships. My dog's paws are like sandpaper, so you could probably use those. But I, so, what, what by the, the way, what would they use? so dog's paws is like almost a very warm answer. And being <laughs> someone from Boston, you it's, it's might close. know this answer. Yeah. Oh, being from Boston, it has there's to... there's it has something to do with the sea. 
Is it a sea salt scrub? No. Oh my God, barnacles. Barnacles is a good (laughs) guess too, but that's not it. It's actually dogfish or shark skin. Oh, shark skin. They would dry out. Yeah, that stuff can can make you bleed. Yeah. Like if a a dogfish like brushes or grazes against your leg in the shallows of Cape Cod in the summertime, like you could break skin. Yeah. So they would dry it out. And then use that as sandpaper. And that's what Makes they would a lot of sense actually use. And then probably the- It's got a grain though. It only goes one way. Yeah. <laughs> the balls were, you know, the balls were probably not very round. I mean, one of the most, you know, w- it, what's interesting is that when you understand really um, what a ball is, which is in physics, we call it a sphere. And it is a- Is that, is that Jewish physics? A sphere? A sphere. I think sphere is just how you pronounce it. Sphere. Am I wrong? Sphere. sphere. Oh, sphere. <laughs> all right, maybe. All right, so maybe. <laughs> maybe. Maybe I got that. Maybe you're right about that. Uh, so something sounds wrong with that. <laughs> well, I, you know, I do. My, my, uh, my, my brother-in-law sphere. is Jewish. My godparents are Jewish. I'm from New York, so oh, man, maybe it does great. come through a little. Let me ask you a question about that. Can you think of anything in the natural world that's a sphere? Like truly spherical? Truly spherical. Oh, that's a great question. Um, Like, is it a natural occurring? I don't think that with the naked eye, there's that many things that are naturally occurringly truly spherical. Like the earth isn't spherical and that's not something you can capture with with a natural eye. The earth is pretty darn close though. Actually, the earth is probably the closest to a an answer of like yeah that is a natural phenomenon of a sphere it's not spherical it's it's earth super has mountaintops it would it, it is super earth has valleys it is super close there's actually one other occurring phenomenon in the natural world the moon is pretty close to spherically shaped yeah i mean well planets basically right because yeah. gravity is shaping them uh and that's kind of all the forces are acting equally and that's really what makes a sphere right all of the sides are equidistance <laughs> a sphere you said sphere again <laughs> I, I, I don't know if i'll be able to stop it's saying it because i've been out of your head it's, it's 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 sphere <laughs> a sphere oh god i'm so glad we captured that uh, so another natural occurring way that you would get a sphere would well would be drops of water I was thinking about drops of water, like rain droplets as they fall. Rain droplets as they fall. Now, air would potentially, uh, air resistance would misshapen it. Yeah. But in a vacuum, if you were to drop a, uh, you know, drops of water, they would- happen all the time. Yeah, sure. they would happen. Well, <laughs> and in fact, this actually around the time when golf was becoming a thing, because- after wooden balls, there was this belief that they were using metal or iron balls. So that was another, oh, you know, material. Oh. It wouldn't really work well for oh, golf. Think about that, like in the dead of winter or in Scotland, even here in Portland well, and they found, in November, hitting a metal ball with a, with a rusty shank. <laughs> yeah. Like, imagine that, that vibrato coming through yeah. your bones. Oh, Jesus. Well, and I've got those eyeline heavy balls that are basically metal balls. I should give one to you. They're not super what is effective. It, for like it was like a supposed aid? to help you with putting. And, yeah, um, so, in fact, North Berwick, where there's, uh, you know, one of the most famous golf courses in Scotland, they found a metal ball, which they were saying, oh, this could have been like an early golf ball. I actually think that's not the case. I don't really think people were playing golf balls. Like 
golf Cro-Magnon ball bearing. Well, what I think it was was a was a cannonball or a bullet. Fodder. Like, well, I think it would have been the right size for a cannon, like a you know, like a brown sure. bass type of cannon. Yeah, and I would not be surprised in the earliest iterations of golf that bullets of that nature, like musket balls, were used at some level, maybe larger ones. Remember, one of the things that transformed archery from being the most important activity for the defense to not being as important and gave the the populace more leisure time so they could go play more golf was the rise of muskets and guns. And all of a sudden... It was, you know, musket practice or, you know, preparing them I bet with you guns. But that transition took a long time. Oh, it did it, take a long time. It didn't happen overnight. It was probably several decades of time that elapsed before muskets became effective means of killing. Well, what's interesting is what I found, I didn't discuss this in our last thing because I forgot about it. When we talked about the target game, when James II banned golf in 1457... That was the same year he was given a cannon that was, you know, famously named and it was a large cannon. And he um, basically became obsessed with cannons and eventually guns. And actually his death came in a battle where he was by the artillery and the cannon exploded and shrapnel hit his leg and he bled out and died on the battlefield. Good for him. Yeah. So... So anyway, there is a little bit of a connection there, but the big revolution in golf came in what is considered somewhere around. Oh, can I hold on before you announce something? Yeah, can I can I venture a guess? What I th- I think it goes to a a goose feather or duck feather leather wrapped ordeal that is really difficult to make i heard something from some dude who told me that like you had to kill like six ducks to make a golf ball or something like that you might so in the picture that i have from this really great book which is the reference book it's called the golf ball book by udo mosha and larry dennis it, the ball was known as the feathery and the feathery, feathery, the feathery was known to require a top hat full of feathers. A top hat full. So that's how you would measure. But I thought how that many they, like, feathers go into a feathery ball. Okay, you so would I fill thought, a top hat full of down feathers. That's how many feathers go in. But don't they like melt them or something? What you would? How do, do you do that? Like, how do you put that much, that many feathers under that amount of pressure to like formulate them into a ball? that you can stuff inside of a leather pouch. I'm going to read this because this is actually really good. So to make a feathery ball was exceedingly difficult, requiring skill and patience. The ball maker started with either untanned bull hide or horse hide, which was cut into lobes anywhere from two to four, and then soaked in warm water to make the leather pliable. The lobes were sewn together with a fine curved needle, making closely spaced stitches using linen thread that had been treated with beeswax for lubrication and strength. The stitches were left loose enough so that they formed a pouch and could be turned inside out, putting the raised seams on the inside. About a quarter inch slit was left so the feathers could be poked inside. The feathers were usually down from the breast of a goose, boiled to make them workable, 
Incredibly, a top hat full of feathers would be stuffed into a pouch an inch and a half in diameter. <laughs> the empty pouch sat in a socket, a hard leather cup that the ball maker held in his hand while he started the procedure of poking feathers through the slit with a small wooden stuffing wedge. Next, he used a brogue, an iron rod some six to 16 to 20 inches long, which he used to apply pressure and tamp down the feathers. Okay, by the way, I gotta say that I just love the fact that the unit of measurement for the appropriate amount of feathers is a top hat. <laughs> Pretty standard, you know, top hat. It's like, it's not a bushel, it's not like a, a pound, it's not a kilo, it's a top hat. <laughs> Whatever you can fit in the top hat. Yeah. That's how much goes inside of a golf ball. And to, to, to what I'm looking at here, it looks like something that Anthony Hopkins would wore on his face in Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> I mean, it's a leather golf ball. As the ball dried, it would get harder. So the key here was you would wet everything um, and you would even have the feathers would ultimately be wet as they're going in. And the principle of it is that as it would dry, the feathers would sort of expand, expand yeah. and the leather would shrink and it would create opposing forces firm. and it would become a very firm object. And it would probably, you know, by the time it's done, you know, have, you know, whether it would bounce like a ball that we have today is probably unlikely, but it would certainly have some you know, bounce to it, similar to it. Some characteristics that are similar. It would certainly have a little bit of God, compression. God, I'd really love to get our hands on. I've seen one. Have you seen one? Yeah. There was a guy, um, uh, Dick Esty here in Portland, Oregon. He actually had one of the greatest ancient golf clubs and golf balls. And I've seen them up close. That's so cool. Uh, they were very expensive. So just to put it into perspective, a single golf ball would probably have cost in today's dollar about anywhere between 80 and $150 each. That's what I was talking about in our last time that we came in here. I was like, this is a sport that from its beginnings was never, you know, it was out of reach for the common person. You can't So I would say the feathery ball, really like, does make the game out of reach if, for the common if, person. If I had never played golf before and I was like, I want to pick up a new sport today. I want, I want to do something that's going to like, you know, still like fill that void of like competitive fire that I've had for, you know, the majority of my life and apply it to something new. I want to learn a new sport. And you told me, and I was like, what about golf? And then the next thing that somebody told me was, oh, well, you have to buy a golf ball. And as a matter of fact, you have to buy several of them so that you can practice. And each one of them costs $100. I'd be like, yeah. Dude, I have a hard time buying new Pro V1s. Right. Justifying. Well, and I actually, wait, wait till we get just, <laughs> wait till we get a few more hundred years in the future and start talking about sure, this too. Because sure, but I'm just saying like, the reality was... is, is we, you don't realize how lucky we are about the price of golf balls. If we were to go back in time, 20 years, 40 years, 80 years, a hundred years, they would look at you and be like, oh my, oh God. my God, sure, you can buy the best golf balls, you know, for for many of us for the the amount of like an hour or two of work I don't know if and you can buy a dozen ball. golf balls for that but you this, know this golf it's... ball I had a, I have a golf ball in my pocket right now I played earlier with with my boss and it's like uh yeah I have I have a it was I'm gonna a, I'm gonna a pro v1 and I bought it out of I bought it out of the the Heron Lakes junk box for a dollar 
dollar fifty. Wow. It was a dollar fifty. I believe that's nice that you found it. By the way, that 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 does mean you're a golf addict <laughs> when you see a Pro V one in the junk ball, right. junk junk bucket among among a thousand other. Balls. Right, you're like, like oh, eye, there's a player V one. My eye gets drawn. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. By the way, finding golf balls. It's one of the interesting things about when I, especially when I did the history of East Moreland, how many dudes from back in the day, like hardcore golfers like us, mm-hmm. like passed away with like barrels and barrels and barrels full of golf balls that they would have collected and gone out and just hunting for golf balls in the woods on their, you know, like basically they would go play golf and practically be just hunting for golf balls more than even playing while they're out there just to collect them because, because they were expensive. Now let's go a little bit further because at that same time in Scotland, ball making became kind of an important part of the economy. In fact, one of the ball makers in Scotland uh, was granted an exclusive, oh, like a patent. Yeah, he so was. Like, You're the golf. He was ball the guy. only ball, golf ball maker um, allowed. James Melville in for, 16, for like official play. Exactly in yeah. 1618, King James, who was the king of Edinburgh, that later became the king of all of England. You know, he basically said that all other form-made feathery balls were banned and only, you know, he was the only one that could could actually create them. This actually upset a lot of people, though, because... I don't know why this is a point they, of controversy. I have no what? idea. Because, like, you can't play an NFL game, you can't play a baseball game, you can't play an NBA game without an official league, a, a league-authorized official ball. Well, that's actually interesting because as we go into this a little bit further, we're going to get into really what makes the golf ball interesting. And that's, one hand, the technology race, right? So golf balls more than any other sport, go into a massive technology race, just like golf clubs. I mean, they are the, it's totally. the equivalent of the space race or the arms race. Yeah. Golf, unlike other sports, if you well, were- Well, tennis would probably be similar in that regard. I mean, the tennis ball doesn't really change. What are you talking about? It's changed a little bit over time. You think time. they had like rubber tennis balls like uh, 200 years ago? No, they didn't have rubber tennis balls 200 years ago, but I do you expect tennis balls to actually perform rackets? differently. Look at basketball, look at baseball, look at football. Yeah, I mean, the the soccer balls evolved as has the football, marginal. as has the it's just baseball, like marginal. but it's marginal. Marginal. Not not in a way that's right. really impacted right. the net result of the right. game. And actually, let's take it a level up because you know, the feathery is interesting Hold and it's on. romantic. Hold on. I've accurately predicted the first two phases okay. of golf ball. What is the next <laughs> what is the next golf ball revolution? I think I'm gonna mess up here, but I think And when did it happen? Ooh. Okay. So I think that feathery takes us for Okay, so the the wooden golf ball was a long period of time. And the feathery was like I think the feathery is like fifty years or a hundred years, but then I think the next one is like a pure rubber ball. Okay, and when do you think that happened? So the feathery hits the scene, and so the the wooden ball or the iron ball was basically pre sixteenth century. The feathery hits the scene around sixteen hundred. It's sixteen eighteen. King James like even announces we've got an official ball maker here in Scotland, <laughs> awesome. James Melville. Awesome, yeah. So when is the next big innovation? At what year does it happen? Pick an actual number. Um, seventeen fifty. Uh, no, it does not happen then. 1848 was when it was started to really hit the scene. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Is golf being played at this time in America? 
No. No. There's no golf in America. No golf that we can speak of. None. We're just a bunch of losers. Well, there was some, there is the first written record of golf in America was in the 1700s or maybe even in the 1600s where it was banned in Albany, New York for people playing in the street. Okay. But that is probably golf. So, because those were probably, you know, New York was originally, you know, settled by people from Amsterdam you know, New Amsterdam. And so it was much more likely that they were playing Some golf derivative. or derivative of golf. So the answer is largely no. No. Okay. No. So let's get back on track. So, you know, back on track. And and by the way, the story of the golf ball will hit America in a big so way. So we're talking about we like mid-1800s, the, yep. the, the next major technological advancement happens for the golf ball. Yeah, and basically it comes in St. Andrews. Oh. And it is. Oh, is this a Tom Morris? No, it's not Tom Morris. Although Tom Morris is connected to this, and Tom Morris's story yeah. really elevates his game because of what is known as what is later known as the gutty or the rubber golf ball. It was actually a gentleman by the name of Rob Patterson, a divinity student at St. Andrews, who was an avid golfer, but frustrated yeah. because he couldn't afford featheries. So he's a student in St. Andrews overlooking the old course and, you know, wants to golf, but golf balls are essentially, you know, a serious commodity. And the interesting thing about featheries as well is that similar to golf balls of our day, they would, they would run out of juice. Like if it's a luxurious commodity, it's one of the reasons why, um, the ability to exchange balls when you go into water exists, because if the uh, a, a feathery gets wet. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's kind of screwed. I remember hearing that. Yeah, you get a feathery wet, and it's basically just dead. It potentially if it is if it's under the you water for long enough. Out, yeah, right? you can try to dry them out, but if it's underwater for long enough, it's probably toast. Why wouldn't they just um? Why wouldn't they just like lube up a a, a feathery and beeswax and let it dry out? I'm sure they did. To like I'm try sure to they like, did all kinds of stuff kind to bring of it back. Weatherproofing to, life. to it. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, go on. So basically, this guy, Rob Patterson, or Dr. Patterson, he would receive packages. And he ended up getting a statue of the Hindu deity Vishnu delivered in 1843 to the university. So this is like an original (laughs) Amazon package. Like the multi-armed Indian god. Yeah, so actually we do now have Vishnu to thank. Um, as another one of the golfing gods. And in this statue, it was protected by the equivalent of styrofoam popcorn or bubble wrap of 1843, which was packed in blackish-brown shavings of the gutta-percha rubber tree. So these were essentially kind of little rubber shavings. And he had the idea that why don't I take these shavings and that had been gun to show up in town as rubber soles. So this is like, you know, pre-Nike. Someone is like, hey, let's use this rubber that's coming over and to kind of put it under our feet. And he said, well, what if I try to press it together and turn it into a golf ball and heat it in the fire? And he did so. And was able to go out and play golf with it. And it was like, 
pretty decent. Without any kind of a, he, he a didn't cover really, on the ball. He didn't really do any cover. In fact, that was a problem because the first time he played, it it's almost went, too smooth. Right? It, well, it 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 um shattered. It shattered. It shattered. It broke. Is, it, in is that a Scotland thing or? Is it no, I mean, I think it's well. It's if you really know. I mean, if you understand a little bit more about the golf and the physics of golf. You know, having a golf ball not break in half when you hit it is is actually like a difficult physical physics problem to solve. Um, and yeah, you know, makes sense. And so, um, how do you have it compress as opposed yeah, to he, just crack it? He kept on making these makeshift rubber golf balls. He eventually gave the recipe to his brother, and then he went off to America, and he never apparently never played golf again because there were no golf courses. Boo. Shame. I know it's sad. America, but sad he place. can be credited with um, creating the original Gutty, which his brother later made a batch of them and called them Patterson's composited, patented rubber golf ball. Sounds like this guy was a marketer. He was. A, he was definitely a marketer. He was definitely saw some opportunity, and even though they were pretty much rejected by all golfers, eventually, and you know this to be true eventually even those that scoffed at it were like i can win with this thing let me give me this yeah let me see this well at first they were you know yeah they were like give me let me see it try let me see it, how totally. it works it's almost like yeah. in the turn of the century right now there was the aversion for people to move right. to like large head drivers right? right and in fact this is where tom morris comes in so tom morris was working at st andrews and he was Built, making featheries. He was the apprentice, essentially. Under, Tom Morris was doing this. Tom Morris was the apprentice under. Um, that was the thing. Imagine, imagine a world where you had to have an apprenticeship. Right. <laughs> well, me. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's just kind of how, I'll, in many ways, the world still is in some ways. But I mean, there it was much more formalized. But he was essentially apprentice under a guy, gentleman by the name of Alan Robertson. And Alan Robertson was basically the club pro and he was the maker of feathery balls. And when the gutty came, to the scene, Tom started making gutty balls. He was like, oh, this is this, the next thing. This is the next thing. I'm going to start making them. Alan Robertson was furious and was like, I will, we will never make these gutty balls. This is a crime. This is should be illegal. Nobody could, should use these. I can understand that. Yeah. And, and side note, wasn't Tom Morris also a caddy? Uh, yeah. He would have been, well, he was basically employed as a golf pro, a caddy, sure. a, all the things. Yeah. I mean, so in other words, the fact that golf was expensive actually, really what it meant is that there was another class of people that were out there making golf courses. You like know, that was the other thing. Even though you can say like on one hand, oh, golf is just for the nobility. The reality is the nobility were essentially subsidizing the the game and there were other people that were having the opportunity to be a part of it now not everyone was a part of it but also by the way saint andrews the old course there were no green fees i mean if you had a club and a ball you could go out and just play there was yeah. nothing to prevent you from playing they just probably hoped that you would buy food or beer right? actually it was basically a public money? park it's the public there park. wasn't a, many money it was I, the links were basically open and to anybody i'm interested hold on i'm interested in this this little factoid that you've just dropped where old tom morris is now really um 
he's really interested in this evolution and he wants to buy into it and he's going so this is uh this is a fallacy of humans that's happened time and time again over the hor- over the history of our evolution and even as recently as the way that as humans we do modern communication in the turn of the century with the evolution of modern channels by means of like mass communication through TV or other media. And we have the generations like us and those below us that have evolved to adapt modern forms of communication. And the generations in front of us just won't let go of those old timey communications ways. So it's like they won't let go of those things. And in, and this is happening with Tom Morris in the mid 1800s. Right? Yeah, no, hundred percent. I mean, this is a disruptive technology. The feathery, was in our today's dollars probably around like $150 to $200 a ball. The, the guddies yeah. That makes were, sense to me because guddies, it was like an art. Yeah, the guddies were kind of taking the golf ball to down to like 25 bucks a Imagine ball. if you went to a pig farm and there was a guy that specialized in making footballs and you were like, can you handcraft me this football that's NFL quality, you know, and passes all the standards and regulations that would be playable in the NFL? He'd be like, yeah, I can do that. Well, I think the biggest difference, though, between that and golf. (laughs) Well, yeah. Well, I think the difference between a football and a golf ball, and this is really key, every player is bringing their own ball. Sure. They're all playing their own ball. Yeah. In the NFL, how many balls are. And they're changing them out. And they're changing them out, but in the NFL, they're changing their balls out. Like they've got like the game balls. But essentially, there's only one ball. It was interesting last week watching Tiger uh, his entire round as he's mic'd up in Japan. Because for the first time, uh, for me, watching a PGA event, you actually heard Tiger say to Joe, change out this ball. Make me a new ball. I, it's a badge of honor if I can finish an 18 with the same ball. Oh I mean, I've, that is the coolest moment, right? I played well today. I went through more than a sleeve. Still. I feel like a, such a wound when I play a single ball for a total 18 and then I bring it out and nuke it into OB on like the second shot of my next round. I played it's just this like, ball. This, oh, I lost soldier this ball, right there. This ball in my hand, I played this ball for the first like two or three holes and I and I rotated it out and it's because it's just scuffed, right? Like yeah. it wasn't because I lost it. It's just got, you know, a healthy scuff in it. Well, yeah, and what's interesting, by the way, for the gutty, let's get into that right now. I don't now. know if this is actually going to impact my game. I just look at it and I go. Mm, well, you know what's funny though I is you, you might toss that away, but as you may know, it was the caddies that discovered, especially with gutties, that it was those scuffed balls, those nicked balls, that flew straighter. I, yeah. Yeah, I've read that. Right. So I've read that. that so yeah. actually, the caddies were the ones that realized that. They would say, oh, you know, oh, you know, sir, your ball is all nicked up. And the, and the nobility was like, you know, put a new ball in. And the caddy would keep the old ones. The old ones would actually, they would discover perform better it was one of the key things they would discover about so this is before gutties had like dimpling yes and in fact this is an example of early dimpling so it wasn't dimples as much as it was like sort of crosshairs it's like veining yeah it's like veining or they're just kind of putting like scor- scratch lines sure. around the entire ball sort of like longitude and latitude and when you study the physics of the ball what you realize is that the, it creates kind of a distortion field of the wind resistance and 
by having that distortion, it actually allows the ball to travel faster because if the wind is just kind of smoothly going around the back, it creates kind of turbulence behind. So you get the, like a knuckleball effect. Yeah, you get a knuckleball effect, exactly. But what they started to do was also use kind of a harder rubber at some point, and then they would use a softer gutta percha kind of outer core. So what they began to do is then have layers. Layers. Right. There was a very big moment here in the history of the ball, and it's connected to baseball. I like things connected to baseball. The big thing that happened was in around 1892. This was right around the time when golf was beginning to blossom in the United States. Waverly Country Club in Portland, Oregon was uh, founded in 1892. So not long after the gutty came into fashion, golf started to become- Take off. Seriously, take off, yeah. yeah. More golf courses were made. Golf, cor- golf balls were more affordable. People also had more leisure time because this was the beginning of the industrial age. So the entire sort of way in which everyone was organizing you know, themselves around industry, there were more people that were maybe nouveau rich in the way. Um, the first and, forms of industrial automation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and actually industrial automation comes into the story in a big way because there was the next innovation in 1892, and it was a New England sportsman by the name of Tom Brady. Corbin Haskell. Not Tom Brady. He had moved to Cleveland in 1892, and he was a bicycle manufacturer. And his bicycle tires were made by a company called Goodrich Rubber Company. Now, at that time, he noticed that the Goodrich Rubber Company had a machine that would make very fine rubber thread for rubber bands. And Haskell started to make a rubber band ball. And he realizes that, you know, this could be a pretty cool golf ball. So he goes to the factory and says, could you help me create sort of a circle pattern? We'll use a small sort of rubber slug at the center and wrap this rubber bands around this slug and then took gutta percha rubber and made a cover around the ball and it was called the bouncing billy. And this golf ball was basically considered illegal. Everyone immediately said it's unsporting. The ball went massively far. So this is the time period when drives are going from 150 yards maximum to where people are now being able to hit them 200 plus. Okay. So all of a sudden you're hitting. Game changer. In fact. I wonder how far one of these balls would go with our modern clubs. I mean, I think this ball was seriously juiced. You know, the RNA at the time, they were not super happy with it. The black market price of these balls soared to $7.50 a ball, which compared to the retail price in America of $6 a dozen. At the time for a gutter ball. At the time. 
for for the no for these for these bouncing billies oh, the these black haskells market price. the black market price was for a single ball was more than so that would be like a, a like oh i want these pro sure. v1s you're gonna have to pay it's like the costco ball yeah fifty dollars <laughs> per ball the kirkland ball so you know instead of getting a pro v1 for you know for let's say you know forty dollars if you're savvy or whatever you know, like four bucks a ball or something yeah you would be paying four hundred and eighty dollars for the dozen yikes yeah yikes yeah there's too much water on a golf course for that. <laughs> now let's go a little bit further because at that same time an American company got into the game. So the Haskell ball is just about to disrupt the gutty. But there was a company that came in that was ready to make an impact. And they sent a sales rep to England and he came back and said, we should make golf balls and also eventually clubs. He's like, they're selling like hotcakes here in the UK. And golf is starting to become a thing here in America. And we are a sporting company. And they became one of the most known sporting companies in the United States. What was the name of that company? I'm going to guess. Okay. Spalding. Spalding is correct. Yes. So Spalding, <laughs> who was a professional baseball player, played for the Boston Red Stockings. Really? Yeah. I, d I did not know that. He played for the Boston Red Stockings, later played for the Chicago White Stockings. No way. And he uh, essentially- This is year what? This was in, when he was into the baseball market, this would have been about, he played professional baseball somewhere in like 1870s. Okay. And so it was before the White Stockings through the World Series. Yeah, way before that. No, this is like pre-1900. In fact, when he sent his sales rep over to the UK, this was before 1900. And Yikes. and so that would he, have been a tremendous and, investment and to spalled, send somebody over to the UK to try to sell equipment. Because I think they were probably going to try to see if they could get into the cricket ball market with their baseball. Mm -hmm. So they basically started making baseballs. So he was a pitch. He was a pitcher, I think, and a hitter. And he basically was decided, I want to get into the sports equipment you know, manufacturing, equipment business. manufacturing, which really didn't exist. I think a lot of baseball players at the time were making their own bats. They were maybe not making their own balls, but essentially there wasn't any one standard ball at the time. Sure, there was no governance over it, that's for sure. Yeah, and they kind of built the initial model, which later was like, you know, goes to this day with like Nike and, you know, Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods, which was to work with stars to promote their sporting equipment. So they went to the UK, they decided they wanted to get in the golf ball market, and then they spoke to Harry Varden. They wanted to sign people. They wanted to sign Harry Varden. And Harry Varden came to the United States. And Harry Varden at this time is like reigning you, the he's, reigning open champion. He's a reigning open champion. He's known as the number one golfer in the world. They go to him and they say, we're going to pay you a boatload of money and come to the U.S. He won the U.S. Open and they had the Varden flyer. Using was, Spalding equipment. Yeah, using the Varden flyer. Right on. That was the That thing. was the ball. That was the ball. The challenge was they did this investment right at the time when the gutty was basically the new feathery. And the Varden Flyer, even though it had all the marketing clout, 
behind Spalding and he went on this big tour of the United States. And in fact, that was also really the tail end of the basically the gutty ball because it was quickly established by most of the pros that the new Haskell ball, the bouncing Billy, was just far more in distance. And it was known to be super lively. The issue that they had with it was that it was it it it, it reacted differently on the greens. So it was more lively. In fact, it's alleged that there were a couple major events where Harry Varden was sort of disillusioned by his player opponent because he would watch them hit like a Haskell ball Mm -hmm. and he would then assume the green is hard and I'm going to get a lot of action and run on it but in fact the gutty wouldn't go anywhere like the ball was literally reacting differently and so by the time Spalding goes to the Haskell and decides we want that patent. Now, what's interesting is that Spalding had another patent, though, with the Valden Flyer, and that was the dimpled ball. So this is one of the original black dot Spaldings that you're looking at right here. It looks basically like a modern golf ball. More or less, yeah. More or less. The dimpling is less consistent. Actually, it's probably more consistent. Um, it just seems very, like a very distant relative of the modern golf ball. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you like and subscribe to the 18 Opportunities podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify, and then share with your friends. Who doesn't love a great golf story? 18 Opportunities Podcast.